Love Death Ireland, and thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Diana Asadran, and this is the pilot episode of ABS in Mind, in which our awesome team will share some of the exciting things happening in their corners of asset-backed securities. So today's lineup. First, we have Gwelda Wen. Gwelda, what's on your mind? Rent regulations. Mm. Next, we have uh, Albert Yoon. Al, what have you got for us? I'm going to talk about uh, the demand for uh, modified loans, reperforming loans, uh, a very big play for some big investors out there. Awesome. And lastly, I will touch on the recent wave of interest from debt investors in the online lending space in Latin America. And to help me do this, we actually have James Sagan from Arc Labs join us. Hi, James. Hey, how's it going, guys? Before we dive in, could you tell us what Arc Labs is and describe your involvement in the uh, region? Sure. Um, Arc Labs is a <clears throat> is an asset based lender um, that primarily focuses on lending against receivables that are generated by tech enabled. Uh, products and receivables or technology companies themselves and revenues that are generated by those technology companies. Um, our primary focus is in emerging markets and sort of incidentally, we have been um, almost exclusively focused the last year or so in Latin America, primarily Mexico. Um, and our, our most of our businesses happen to be fintech lending businesses, whereby we're lending to these lenders against the receivables they're originating, both small business and consumer. Um, and also software as a service businesses um, that are generating consistent revenues that we think are financeable through less dilutive means than, than equity capital. Why is there such a sudden rush of capital into the region these days, especially for the fintech sector? Yeah, it's interesting um, because I um, sort of in, I guess, late 2014, early 2015, um, I was looking at a lot of different lenders, early online lenders that were in the very early stages of growth, couldn't really get financing um, from the victory parks of the world or the, or the larger sort of, um, you know, relatively smart uh, funds out there. Um, and even at that time, I felt that there was a really interesting arbitrage in Latin America by virtue of the fact that the magnitude of the problem is so much more significant. So if you look at Latin America, uh, you know, from a debt to GDP perspective, it's far less penetrated than the U.S., both for consumers and small businesses. Um, and so even at that time, I thought it was more attractive, but you do have to sort of grapple with the relevant risks in Latin America, and it's hard to figure out what type of risk premium you need to get paid. So at that time, um, you started to see some really, really smart teams sort of start to form, like Credit Husso, Confio, Kweski. Um, and we were the first debt. Um, actually, this is when I was uh, managing um, my family office. Uh, I was the first debt behind Credit Husto. And so even at that time, we found it really, really interesting. I think the dollar sizes were too small, and there are a lot of other folks who did recognize the opportunity, um, but it wasn't really actionable. Um, and then so if you, you know, fast forward four or five years to today, um, you know, there, there's fairly large origination platforms that have formed. Um, and I think there's enough vintage data where the credit sort of has spoken for itself. I think there is this perception that, um, you know, Mexico in particular is a really risky place, especially for unsecured consumer and small business lending. Um, and I think the data has just proven that categorically not to be the case. Um, and so if you look at some of these vintages that have been produced, um, the performance has just been exceptional. And I think there's a lot of sort of really, really good beta in that market in general. And a lot of people have caught on to that. So I, I think it's just naturally um, the, the data has sort of spoken for itself at this point. Um, and that's why you see this huge rush 
of U.S. investors trying to place capital in the region, and also because there's just an overabundance of capital in the U.S. in general. So things are so efficient at this point. If you've raised a really big fund, what else do you do with it? <laughs> I think that's kind of why you're seeing this trend. Well, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned kind of the debt aspect of it all. Um, there hasn't really been like a established debt infrastructure in the region for the fintech lenders until very recently. So I was wondering, what are some of these debt structures you've seen develop uh, in the space in the last, let's say, a year or so? You know, um, a lot of these structures actually far predated this new fintech wave. Mm-hmm. So it's funny. Um, I was with a good friend who started one of the bigger um, sort of lending companies throughout Latin America, but a more traditional lender many years ago. And, um, you know, his comment was that everybody thinks they're reinventing sort of subprime lending in the region. And, and most of these products are subprime in category. He goes, you know, we, we, we've built, uh, my friend and I have built, you know, many subprime businesses. If you look at Electra, um, they generate a billion dollars net income a year. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there was a lot of infrastructure put in place prior to this fintech wave. Um, it's just, it was sort of a, a secret, right? It was just not really <laughs> um, well known to, especially American debt investors and international debt investors. But there's a number of structures that have been created that allow and afford investors extrajudicial protection. So you know, there are video commisos, which are essentially um, guarantee trusts so that you can assign these receivables. And as the lender, you can collect directly from the end borrowers yourself. Of course, practically you rely on usually these platforms of service on your behalf. But from a protection perspective, um, it's actually, you know, um, it's actually quite secure, even relative to, to the structures we have in the U.S. And so the security in, in, in sort of the infrastructure that's been created in Mexico sort of far predates this whole fintech wave. Um, and so, you know, mostly what you're seeing are much simpler structures um, that are put in place, um, you know, to affect basically, you know, to, to create a, a quick facility um, and to make the structure a little bit more simple for these for these companies. So they're usually, you know, senior secured, you know, loans at, at a certain advance rate against a portfolio. And then that portfolio is then assigned to one of these video comisos. Um, they're offering sort of revolving warehouse structures. You haven't really seen the sophistication of structures and securitizations mm-hmm. that you're seeing in the U.S. You're not seeing a lot of MES um, debt yet. It's usually just um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, a big fund in the U.S. offering a senior secured line. Um, and the junior piece is coming from sort of the equity dollars from the company um, for the balance sheet lenders, at, at least. Um, so you, you haven't seen that sort of uh, succession of, of, of structures that, you, that you've seen more efficient in developed markets yet. Right. And lastly, just, uh, you know, from your perspective in terms of returns or anything of that sort, what's the main differentiator of the current LATAM fintech opportunity for U.S. investors compared to kind of the domestic um, opportunity? Well, I just think that it's sort of, uh, you know, unfortunately, I wish there's more complicated, but it is very simple. And the thesis is very simple um, that origination platforms can cherry pick credits because it's a much more favorable environment for creditors than it is for borrowers. Um, Interest rates are much higher. Default rates are much lower proportionally. Um, And so and and also as a senior secured lender, you can lend at a lower, a much lower advance rate than you'd otherwise be able to lend at the U.S. Um, so there's a lot more access spread. Um, the rates are, are much more interesting. Um, and I think that's, I think, you know, in our view, that's fairly sustainable. Of course, there are certain political risks um, and economic risks that attend to these environments that are, that, you know, aren't really risks in the U.S. 
And so you do have to generate a premium um, to participate in these markets. Um, but, you know, I, I do think from a risk-adjusted perspective, um, you end up doing a lot better um, in, in places like Mexico. I will say that it is all very product-dependent, right? Um, and, and, it, and it really depends where you're playing. There are already some segments that are becoming fairly saturated because of the amount of players. Um, but in general, we find it the most attractive place. And so from a return perspective, um, you know, I, I won't really touch on, on our specific returns, but um, and on an unlevered basis, you're certainly um, in the teens, which I think is, is very difficult to achieve in the U.S. Um, without taking inordinate risk. Fantastic. Thank you, James, so much for uh, jumping in. Appreciate all the insights. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Next, we have Gualda. Gualda, can you tell us more about rent regulation? Sure. I mean, most people in New York probably have heard that uh, in June, rent regulation reform was approved now that the Democrats have uh, both both houses at the state level. Um, and lobbyists were shocked, actually, at how extreme the law that they managed to pass was. The major issues were that it eliminated what was known as a major capital improvements provision that allowed landlords to pass uh, the cost of repairing a multifamily building along to rent-regulated tenants. Um, that might sound deep in the weeds, but it really has a fundamental effect on how loans are underwritten. And the New York City multifamily market was already not in the greatest shape. Um, so the legislation has has really changed how people go about attempting to finance these buildings. And it's changed the situation for mortgage REITs that have already uh, originated loans on New York City multifamily buildings. Um, two of those in the second quarter actually announced that they had either watchlisted or downgraded loans, uh, including Blackstone's mortgage REIT and uh, TPG's mortgage REIT. Um, and lenders on the, on the balance sheet and the securitized uh, side of things, which there, there isn't much uh, CMBS exposure actually to rent-regulated units, um, but everyone has said that this really changes the underwriting immediately, that some of these loans are essentially underwater, people just don't know it yet, and they're not going to be able to refinance, they're going to need to be modified. Um, and because no major uh, trades have happened since the legislation passed, and it was immediate, it went into effect immediately, um, there's no price discovery, so no one knows how to even start having the conversation about how to modify these loans. And lastly, arguably, some major landlords are not helping the situation. Um, <laughs> one analyst I know characterized their reaction as a bit of a tantrum. <laughs> um, Blackstone's private equity arm owns the largest multifamily building in New York City, the Stuyvesant Town Peter Cooper Village complex, which they bought for $5.3 billion in 2015. Um, and they immediately halted, well, actually, I think it was this week that uh, it was reported that they had halted repairs at that building. And, and they've said that it was related to the regulation change. Um, why a landlord 
needed an incentive to keep conditions livable is a little bit, uh, well, beyond me personally, but I think also is going to be a PR nightmare for major landlords <laughs> who uh, are trying to send a message to Albany and may end up regretting some of the some of the fallout. Well, do you know if this is going to affect sort of the value of uh, multifamily REITs and whatnot? I mean, what have you heard in that regard? Well, I think that investors, uh, you know, REITs in general are thought to be undervalued already, right? Their stock is, is said to be priced below their, you know, what the book value should should dictate. And I would say with all of this headline risk and and the visible watch listing of certain loans, that's likely to... Not help. Not help. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it, put it that way. Right. At, at the same time, are they just doing their due diligence? I mean, all of these mortgage REITs say that the borrowers are well capitalized, that they're in touch with the borrowers, and they may just be flagging it, uh, you know, sort of to let investors know that this is on their radar, but I, I think it, we're a long way from seeing any like write downs or anything like that. It's uh, absolutely fascinating. We'll make sure to follow up on this, I guess, later in the year when there's some more clarity. Hopefully. <laughs> All right, off to you, Al. Tell us more. Okay, well, um, Gwelda, you mentioned modifications, and so there's a slight segue in what we're, what we're going to talk about here. Um, so I wanted to bring up the, the market of uh, reperforming residential mortgage loans, and this is a market where, I mean, it's actually been quite popular with big investors for years, but earlier this year, a lot of people thought that the juice had all been squeezed from the stone, so to speak. I mean, these are loans that we're talking about that are, were made before the financial crisis and have been modified in some way, shape, or form. So uh, we're distressed at one point, and now they're not distressed. And uh, because of the state of the housing market, uh, albeit slowing, it's still strong. Uh, a lot of people are very excited about that trade uh, at the right price. And so what's happened recently is uh, you've seen with all this global uh, financial market volatility and uh, you know, and a lot to talk about negative yields around the world, not here in the U.S. yet, but around the world. Um, some investors in these loans are starting to anticipate that uh, we'll see a surge in demand from foreign investors uh, who, um, you know, will want a piece of this trade in some way, shape, or form. Um, for instance, uh, one mortgage read, Camara Investment Corp, uh, just uh, uh, last quarter turned bullish on these uh, RPL loans uh, because, uh, uh, for one reason, because it thinks that uh, the securitization market for these loans will improve uh, because of this uh, demand from investors uh, stuck with foreign rates, I mean, not foreign rates, lower, uh, negative rates elsewhere. Sorry about that. Um, so, and, and that's, that's quite possible. Um, the residential mortgage markets, uh, the credit markets, that is, uh, non-agency mortgage bonds and whatnot, have certainly outperformed uh, uh, most other structured products uh, over the past few weeks. Um, we've seen uh, stock markets plunge and uh, high-yield bonds and corporate bonds sell off quite swiftly. 
But uh, residential mortgage bonds, they're not immune either. I mean, so this is what's going to make the trade for firms like Camara interesting because uh, uh, spreads have been widening, um, albeit by not much, but uh, they're not improving. So, uh, you know, not quite sure what that means for the economics for these REITs, but just betting that uh, investors uh, will come flooding into mortgages, residential mortgages, uh, might might not be quite what they had pictured, um, you know, based on uh, the speculation of last quarter anyway. And and how would that manifest uh, when they uh, realize it's not quite the path they expected? Well, um, you know, to put a positive spin on it for the REITs, I mean, perhaps they just don't make as much money as they had imagined. You know, they all have their yield bogeys, and so maybe they missed that, right? Did they also claim to be undervalued the way commercial Oh, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure we all hear the same things from these people, uh, you know, from the REITs. They're always undervalued. They're always, uh, you know, tarred with a broad brush, and they're always arguing, like, why their one is better than the other, so... Um, you know, that's, I mean, that's just a truism for that market. Um, and, uh, you know, you really have to sort of, uh, you know, dive into the weeds when we're talking about REITs to really figure out like which one truly is, you know, a better returning investment for you. Fantastic. Um, thank you. And that's our lineup for today. Thank you so much, James Golda and Al for the insights. And thanks to our podcast producer, Andrew Casentino, for helping us put this all together. And we'll see you all next time. Thank you.